Are we good? Awesome. Well, it's good to be up here this morning. Um, I have indeed become kind of like a city boy. Uh, I left here a little over 10 years ago, and now when it gets to be anything less than 60 degrees, I'm freezing. So uh, Ernie and I got up here this morning, and we're like, man, what is going on here? Uh, so, But it's good to be here. Always good to share the word. Um, it's really nice to see a lot of faces that look so familiar, uh, but I'm more blessed to see a lot of faces that I've never seen before, to know that God is still moving and doing a cool thing up here in the high desert. We do miss it. Uh, I miss being up here. I, I love this place. Every time I drive up here, uh, exit the 15 at, at 138, um, those rocks look more and beautiful every time. And so um, love being up here. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Titus chapter 2, we'll be in Titus this morning. A great letter from Paul to a young pastor. I'm going to go over some things that are just really beneficial for us, I believe, this morning. Titus chapter 2. Before we do that, why don't we pray? Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we want to give you our all this morning. Lord, we want to study your word with a, with a mind that's ready. And so if there's any distractions, God, if there's anything that would keep us from uh, really paying attention, Lord, really hearing what it is that you would speak to us, we pray, God, that you would take away those distractions. If there's any sin, Lord, that's hidden in our heart, that you would reveal it to us, that we might confess of it, even in this moment, that we would be clean before you to hear from you. And Lord, I, I pray for myself right now that you would fill me with your spirit, Lord, I don't want to be presumptuous and just think we could do exactly what we did last service. But God, we desire a fresh message right now that you would speak to us, Lord. God, that the words that would come out of my mouth, that they would not be my own, but they would be yours. And I pray for all of us in here, God, that your Holy Spirit would give us insight and understanding into your word. And so speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Titus chapter 2, a great book. We'll be starting in uh, chapter 2, verse 11 today. Titus, if you know, uh, is a young pastor. Him and Timothy seem to be the two sons of the faith of of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And uh, Paul would go on these missionary journeys, visit different churches. And and what happened on one of these missionary journeys is they stopped in Crete, which is a little island in the Mediterranean. Uh, He told Titus when it was time to go, Titus, you're staying here. I'm going on. And uh, we see that in verse 5. He says, for this reason, I set you in Crete or left you in Crete that you would set in order the things that are lacking. And so uh, Titus's job now is to appoint elders in every city to develop uh, a healthy church, good church leadership. And uh, we see just some really great things. It's a tough group of people that Titus is with. We see that Cretans are lazy, they're liars, and they're evil. And uh, he says that a prophet of their own said that about them. And Paul says this testimony is true. They are indeed liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And so that's the people he's with. In chapter 2, Titus starts out talking about the older women, the younger women, the older men, the younger men, and what they're supposed to do. And then by the time we get to uh, verse 11, there's this really cool part about what the grace of God does in our life. And so today, this morning, we're going to study the grace of God and what it means to us and what it does. So join me as we read uh, Titus 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, 
that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and that he would purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. We'll stop there. That's already uh, probably more than we can deal with. We'll probably be here till about one o'clock trying to figure all this out. Uh, but he says zealous. I love that word. To be zealous means to be passionate, means to exert great energy, uh, to, to have this intensity about us. And he says that we'd be zealous for good works. But before we could be zealous about good works, we need to talk about the grace of God. And I'm sure you guys have heard the grace of God. I'm sure you know the grace of God. But in case there's somebody here who doesn't know the grace of God, we're going to talk about it. Before we could know God's grace, we have to first know God's justice. And that God is a just God. What we see of God, that his main attribute, the one that's sung about every single day, uh, every hour of the day in heaven, uh, well, most people, when you ask them, hey, what's God like? Most people would say, oh, he's loving, right? And isn't God loving? Yeah, sure, he's loving. Uh, they'd say he's mighty and he's powerful. He could, he could do anything. He, could, he can create anything. He could sustain everything. He's powerful. He's mighty. He's loving. Yes, but the angels don't sing love. The angels don't sing powerful. They, the angels, all day long, they sing that our God is what? He's holy. We have a God who is holy. And what does it mean that he's holy? Uh, it would be uh, what we would say uh, separate. Our God is separate. He's above. The angels literally, when they sing to God, they are saying, you are separate, you are separate, you are separate. And we'd say, oh, because he doesn't have any sin, right? Well, the angels don't have any sin and still he's separate from them. He is altogether higher than anything. He's unstained by sin. It can't be in his presence. And and that's why we see when uh, Lucifer rebelled that he had to get them all out of there, right? God is so perfect. God is so holy. He's so far above what we are. Uh, sometimes it, we, we like to think that God is on our level. And it's cute, you know, that we, that we can call him daddy, and that's really good. Uh, but, but we have to always remember that our God is a holy God. We can never at any point forget that about him. He's not like us. He says, as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways, they're higher than your ways. My ways are past finding out. And so we look at God for who he is and the thing about God, him being perfect, we look at ourselves and we see that we are certainly not perfect, right? We're, uh, we're sinners. Usually when I ask kids, I go, what does it mean to be a sinner? It means you do bad things, right? It means you lie to your parents or you cheat on a test or something like that. And yeah, that's true, that is sin, but sin, uh, it's an archery term. Most of us know that. It's an archery term. You see the bullseye that's there at the end? You, you get that bow and arrow and you, and you pull back on that thing. And when you let go, your goal is to hit that bullseye. If you'd missed that bullseye, uh, back in old times, they'd say that you are a sinner. You missed the mark. You were trying to hit the mark. You are going for the right mark, but you just you seemed to miss it. And we as, as humans are sinners. We've missed God's perfect mark. We've missed perfection. And so you say, so what? Big deal. We all, we're all not perfect. I still don't get what the problem is. Well, the problem is, is that because God's holy and we're sinful, we're not allowed in his presence. Oh, come on, Daniel, you can't really mean that. You can't really mean that God's not going to let me into heaven. I mean, aren't we all sinners? Doesn't God love us all and that kind of thing? And you know, we can actually deceive ourselves a little bit when we start comparing ourselves to other people. I like to compare myself to other people at times. Makes me feel good about myself, right? (laughs) Because if I choose the right attributes in my life, I can compare myself to anybody in this room and I'll find a way to make me look better than you. The funny thing is, though, that you could do the same thing, but you just choose the other things. You know, they say, well, figures don't lie, but liars know how to figure, 
Yeah. And so we know how to make ourselves look good when we compare ourselves to other people, but other people can compare us in the same way and they look at a different thing. And, and so the problem isn't, you know, uh, that, that I'm better than this person or they're better than me. The problem is none of us can stand next to God. And so we have a problem on our hands. God, because he's holy, he says that because of our sin, we deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve to be separated from him. There's nobody who does good. No, not one. So we deserve to be left out of God's presence. And so if God were to give us justice, he can kill us on the spot, send us to hell. Nobody would ask any questions about it because he's, all, he's entitled to do that. And so that's where we begin to see God's mercy. What's mercy? Mercy is where God holds back his judgment. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You deserve death and hell. God in his mercy says, no, I will not give you that. I'll forgive you. That alone would be enough to live the rest of our lives for God, wouldn't it? To know that God took away our sin. He covered them. But he goes beyond that. And this is where we start to see grace. And I always use an example with one of the young kids in my youth group. I've been teaching uh, youth ministry for about six years now. And there's this, this young man. He's been in my youth group ever since he was a little guy. Uh, his name's Thomas. And I always use Thomas as my example. Uh, I said, uh, an example of grace and mercy would be that if Thomas, sitting in the front row, took his Bible, maybe he was having a bad day, and he threw his Bible at me, hit me in the face, and it hurt a lot, right? Uh, for me to be just with him would be for me to take that Bible, throw it back at the exact same velocity, hit him in the exact same place and exert the exact same amount of pain. That would be justice, correct? But for me to show mercy would be for me to pick up that Bible and say, um, Thomas, you know, I forgive you. I love you and I don't want you to get the penalty for what you've just done. And I hand him his Bible back. That's mercy. But to be gracious would be for me to go a step further and say, Thomas, you seem to be having a bad day what do you say we go get an ice cream now? People go, what? An ice cream? He just threw a Bible at your face, right? But this is what God does with us, that not only is he merciful to us in that he forgives us of our sins, but he goes above and beyond that. He doesn't just cover our sins. He completely removes our sin. Yeah? He gives us all the blessings in the heavenly places. He seated us in heavenly places. He gives us his Holy Spirit and the power to live the Christian life the way we ought to live. And so we see that God is not only not just, but he's merciful with us through his son. And then he shows us his grace. And he says this in verse 11, that this grace of God, it brings salvation. Because of God's grace, you and I get to go to heaven. That's good news, isn't it? That's very good news. It's incredible news. That's why we call it the gospel. It's good news. It says that the grace of God that brings salvation, it has appeared or it has shown forth and it's shown to all men. Some of us know what it's like to be left out of something, right? Whether it's when you're a little kid on the playground and you're the last one that they pick for teams or maybe they just leave you off the team altogether. Some of us know what that's like. Some of us aren't the uh, best and brightest. Some of us aren't the cream of the crop. And we know what it's like for certain people to get things that we don't get. That happens from time to time. If God said, I have revealed my grace to the overachievers in life, then some of us who are underachievers would go, uh-oh, where does that leave me? Some of us, if he, if he said, you know, I'm, I'm giving the kingdom of God, I want good, tall, handsome men, so you've got to be six foot or taller. Great, that, you know, where am I on that? I don't get it if he says he's only giving it to smart people and not those who are not smart, or I'm only giving it to rich people and not poor, or I'm only giving it to the poor and not the rich, wouldn't be fair, would it? God says that this is for all men. It's 
beautiful to know that because there's some things in this world that are not for all men. And we get the grace of God. And here's what the grace of God does for us. If it, if it only saved, that would be enough. There have literally been times in my life that I have looked at God's goodness, realizing that I don't have to go to hell for all eternity, and I get to go to heaven, I get to see his face. I have literally prayed this prayer, Lord, you don't have to answer one more of my prayers. You've already given me plenty. Because God's grace gives salvation. It brings salvation to all men. But God's grace does more than just proclaim salvation to us. It teaches us and it trains us. And we see three things that it does. It teaches us how to deny certain things. It teaches us how to live a certain way. And it teaches us how to wait a certain way. If you see right there in verse uh, 12, he says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. What does it mean to deny ungodliness? The first thing, the first kind of command here is given in the negative and it's something that we are not to do. So often Christians are noticed for what they don't do just as much as they're noticed for what they do, do, right? So what's he telling us to deny? He says that we would deny ungodliness and worldly lust. What does it mean to be ungodly? It means that we would stay away from those things that do not reflect the character and nature of God. That things like that, we would deny them. He also says that we would deny worldly lust. There are so many things in this world that just grab at us, aren't there? There are so many things in this world that are sinful that just want to grab hold of us. And some of us, we struggle with those things, don't we? That we go, man, I, I, I can't believe I, I, I'm stuck in this thing. Or, or maybe even we'll say to ourselves, um, I, I, I'm completely in bondage to this. I can't be set free. I'm just stuck in this. I'm this type of person. This is who I am. I can't change. I think there's a problem when we say something like that. God's grace, you guys, is not weak. It's very strong. And, and God's Holy Spirit is not weak. God's Holy Spirit is strong. And so when we say things like, well, I can't change, I can't, I can't get over this uh, attitude I have or this disposition, I have two fears of what might be happening. Number one, I think if, if that's you today, that you say, I can't change, I can't be different, I can't deny ungodliness, I can't deny worldly lust. The, the pull of the world is just so strong on me. My first fear is that you might be lying to yourself. Nobody likes someone who lies to themselves, right? Time and time again, they just lie to themselves. You're lying to yourself if you say that you can't be set free from something. Jesus didn't die on the cross to leave you in bondage. Jesus died on the cross to set you free. And so sometimes we might think, oh, no, no, I can't, I can't break this habit. My, my great-grandfather was an alcoholic, and my grandfather was an alcoholic, and my dad was an alcoholic, and I can't break the cycle. Yeah, you can, actually. God, by his Holy Spirit, gives us the power to do that. And by his grace, he's given us everything we need to do that. My first fear is that you might lie to yourself. My second fear, I think, is even worse. If you're stuck in sin and you absolutely can't get away from it, my second problem is that you're just not saved. You, you really can't break that bond because Jesus hasn't given you the power to do that yet. And so we'll give you an opportunity as we uh, move on to receive that power from him. But God, the first thing that we're taught by God's grace is that we can deny the world. Before we were saved, we couldn't help ourselves, right? We sinned. We did sinful things. We didn't even know they were sinful. We just kept doing them. But then once we got saved, we realized, oh man, that's wrong. I feel convicted about it. And now I don't have to do that anymore. God's grace teaches us that we can deny ourselves. And this is, we have a country, a people, and it's really all people, but we don't like denying ourselves, do we? I hate denying myself. That's one of my least favorite things to do. Right? 
that if I want something, I, I want it. And don't tell me I can't have it. I'm an American. I can have whatever I want. Right? We feel that way in a lot of ways. And it's like, no, I should have it. And if I want it, I can have it. We need to learn to deny ourselves. One of the things that we do at our church to start out the year, we do five days of prayer and fasting. It's the least fun week of the year, right? For five days out of the week, we shut down all the services. Every night of the week, we're at the church praying. And everyone participates in one way or another, whether they fast for one day or two days, whether they fast from social media or they fast from food, whatever it is, uh, whether they fast from TV or, or whatever. We need to learn how to deny ourselves. God's grace gives us the power to learn to deny ourselves because everything we want to do isn't necessarily good for us. And so we need to learn this this discipline of saying no to ourselves. It'll do us good. Not only are we taught to deny things, we're taught to live a certain way. He says that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly here in the present age. So God's word saves us. God's grace saves us. It teaches us how not to live and then it teaches us how to live. And he says that we would be sober. Of course, when we think of sober, we think of alcohol. We think of when someone has consumed too much alcohol and it impairs their judgment and now their mind is not in the right place. You think things you shouldn't think. You say things you shouldn't say. You do things you shouldn't do, right? That's what alcohol does uh, in, in our mind, and that's what it means to be not sober. But to be sober would be to have your mind in the right place. It blows me away earlier in Titus chapter 2 that he tells the young women to do this list of you know, three to five things. The older women, he tells them to do a few things. He tells the older men to do a few things. With the young men, he tells them to do one thing. He says, be sober-minded. That's the only thing he tells a young man. He says, just think on the right things. Have your mind in the right place. What are those things? Well, if you turn with me real quick to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are of good report, and if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's where our minds should be, guys. These sober minds that we have. God's grace, as God trains us by His grace, He teaches us to deny things, but the first way He teaches us to live is to have our minds in the right place. And the best way to get your mind in the right place is to get your mind on the things of God and to get your mind in His Word. How do we know the things that are true, pure, of good report, things that are lovely? How do we know the things that are praiseworthy? Well, we see them in God's word. And so that we would be meditating on those things to clean our minds up. He teaches us also that we would live righteously. What does it mean to be righteous? It means do the right thing. Uh, Where where uh, sober-mindedness is is talking about yourself and your own mind, to be righteous is your, your relation with others and how you relate to others, to do the right thing. That, that we would be known as people who do the right thing. This is a world of people who love to take advantage of people. It's been like that since the beginning. It's nothing different. When Peter speaks to the church, he says, add to your faith virtue, to do what's right. And that we would be marked again as a people who do the right thing. And then last, he says that we would be godly in the present age that our lives would reflect who God is. 
Uh, I liked what one commentator said. He says that in the life of a Christian, there should be a family resemblance to God. Uh, Most of you guys know family resemblance. I remember Deanna had sent me a picture a while back. Uh, She had just texted me a picture, and it uh, it looked exactly like her. It looked exactly like her, except there was a little mustache. And I was thinking like, that looks exactly like my little sister. It wasn't my little sister. It was my dad when he had Deborah. And he's holding Deborah. He's got this little mustache. And, I, and, I, and for a second, I just put my finger over the mustache. I go, that looks exactly like her. There's no doubt that Deanna is my father's daughter. There's no doubt. Yeah? There's a family resemblance. And, and, and may it be that way with us, that people would look at our lives and they would say, man, that guy, his character, or that girl, the way she's honest or the way this and that and the way they forgive and they love and they're set apart and they do this, they must be a Christian. There, there's, no other, there's no other explanation for who they could be. Such a family resemblance. They're humble, right? And so these are what God's word teaches us to do, to deny ourselves, to deny the worldly lust, to live the way he would tell us to live. But one other thing that he teaches us here in verse 13 is how to wait. We live in a culture that's not good with waiting, right? I hate waiting. I absolutely hate waiting. There's a place down in, uh, I, I live in Whittier. Uh, I, I serve in Santa Fe Springs, but down in Downey, one of the cities that's close to us, uh, on Firestone Boulevard, there's a Carl's Jr. And I love Carl's Jr. Love it. But there's a Carl's Jr. that has the audacity to not have a drive through <laughs> And I'm just kind of like, why would you even open a Carl's Jr. if you wouldn't put a drive through on it? Because I don't want to wait that long. I don't want to get out of my car, put it in park, or find a parking space, put it in park, get out of my car, walk to the, you know, open the doors, walk in, place an order. I don't have time for that. I don't want to wait. There's a problem, isn't there? You know, in five years now of being married, six Christmases together, uh, my wife Lethe and I have yet to make it to Christmas morning with anything to open. We open our, like, you know, we started opening them on December 1st. Um, it's like just one right now, you know. Um, if her parents hadn't gotten anything for us on Christmas Eve, we would have nothing to open. But all of them were done by Christmas Eve. I just don't like waiting. And this can happen sometimes in our life with the Lord. I mean, how long have we heard that Jesus is coming back, right? Jesus is coming back for our church and some people grow weary. Some people, they tire of waiting. He says that we would be waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's talking to these people. And if you read in Matthew, I believe it's Matthew chapter 24, when he's talking about the servant, he says, blessed is the servant who when the master comes home will find so doing. He's talking about a servant who has waited and grown weary of waiting. I'll give you a little example. Uh, a while back during baseball season, I love watching me some Dodgers. Uh, Letty had gone out. That's my wife, Letty. She had gone out on an errand, and it was just me and Zeke there in the house. And, uh, and she said, okay, hey, sweetheart, while I'm gone, can you put the dishes away and put the laundry away? It's already folded. Dishes are already washed. They just have to be put away. Sure thing. 
Uh, you guys can probably see where this is going. Uh, so as soon as she left, I turned on the Dodger game. Me and Zeke sat and watched the game. And uh, before you knew it, the door was opening. And I hadn't done what I was left to do. So I felt very badly. The next time my wife left, she said, it's just a couple things. If you could please put these things away before I come home. So I was tempted as soon as she walked out the door to just grab the remote, sit back down and watch a baseball game. But I said, son, we're not going to do that. Come on, let's help mom out. Let's, uh, you put your little toys away. I'm going to start putting the dishes away. I'll start putting, and before I knew it, I had them done. And she still wasn't home. I didn't know what time she was coming home. And so I thought, I, I know what I'll do. Because not only do I not want to not get in trouble when she gets home, but I want to go further. I want to bless her. So I got the vacuum out. I started vacuuming. I started cleaning, you know, the counters. And I started, I started doing a lot of extra things. And I had this attitude in my heart that I kind of said, I can't wait till she gets home because of what this is going to look like, the smile this is going to bring, the joy that she'll have because, because I did more than I was expected to do. And in the same way, guys, we wait for the Lord. It's very sad to me to see that a lot of Christians live a very low-level Christianity, right? Not walking in the Spirit, not walking in the promises, but we just kind of, you know, as low as we can, get by hoping that when Jesus comes back, we'll be caught up together with him. I don't want that in my life. I want to be so busy about the things of God that when he comes back, I will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want him coming back and me go, Sorry. I'm still saved. I'll still go to heaven. But I mentioned this last service. I don't want to hear, just get in the house. I want to hear, well done. Right? We've heard those things, right? When we're kids, just get in the house. You're still a son. You're still a child of theirs. But he says, uh, but guys, we would hear that. And so there should be this thing in us. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says that we would comfort one another with these words, that Jesus is coming soon. And we need to be ready. We, we've got to be on guard. We've got to be ready. And, and how do we do that? Um, because it's easy to tire. It's easy to grow weary, isn't it? In verse 14, this is how we do it, guys. Jesus has shown us, God has shown us his grace. And that's what gets the whole thing going. But it doesn't deviate from grace. It doesn't turn into something else. It continues to be Jesus that inspires us to wait. So so God saves us. He teaches us. And he continues to inspire us, right? By looking at him. Verse 14, it says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us, from every lawless deed that he purify for himself his own special people who are zealous for good works. When he says he gave himself for us. What I like about the gift that God gave in his son is we see that it's a valuable gift. I, I remember, uh, I think it was Matt Kemp. He's a baseball player. He signed a really big deal. He makes about $200 million or $20 million a year. Kind of a good amount of money. And uh, he was donating to some charity and he gave something like $100,000. And, and there were people that were like, oh, 100 grand, that's it. Out of your 20 million, that's hardly anything. Right? I heard some people saying that. And, and we could look at God and say, well, God makes a lot more than $20 million. He has a lot, actually. 
Uh, he paves his streets with gold. So he has quite a bit. And then also we see in God uh, that he has the cattle on a thousand hills. So if God said, you know what? I will pay two ounces of gold to, um, to save you. Gold's pretty expensive. We'd say, yeah, it's a good amount of money. But for God, really, that's not much of a sacrifice. What did he really get if all he gave was two ounces of gold? If God said, you know, I'll sacrifice 10 cattle for you to go to heaven. What's the big deal? You have the cattle on a thousand hills. That's hardly a sacrifice. Uh, if God had a thousand sons, some of you parents might think, oh, if I had a thousand sons, you could probably part with one. You know, you might think that. If you ask me what I was willing to give, if God came and said, Daniel, what would you do so that all these people, if you could guarantee that every person in this room would go to heaven, what would you give for that? I probably wouldn't offer anything. I'd wait for his offer. And if he said, would you, uh, you don't want to give too much too early. Uh, and if he said, Daniel, would you, would you go through an intense amount of pain to see these people saved? And I don't know you guys very well, but, but like if he said I had to jump in the ring with a UFC fighter, well, I know it's going to end sooner or later. He promised me I'm not going to die. I'll just get beat up, be black and blue for about three weeks. I'd take that trade so that you guys can go to heaven. They say some of the greatest pain you could feel is to have your femur broken. Would I have my femur broken so that you guys can go to heaven? I would. Would I give up my savings account so that you guys can go to heaven? That's where it starts getting a little harder because I always like, and you parents know, you always want to have something for tomorrow. But I would do it. God's taking care of me all the time. He'll, he'll, he's not going to stop taking care of me. But if, you, if God said, uh, Daniel, would you give up either your son or daughter, Ezekiel or Elena, so that these people can be saved? I'd say, nope, they can go to hell, Lord. And that's not because I don't like you guys, but I don't know you that well. And I couldn't give my son's life or my daughter's life for you. I love them too much. God gave himself. He gave his son for us. If you ever want to know how much God loves you, just look at that. That he gave his son for you. Not, he didn't have a hundred sons that he could say, oh, I'll just make another one. My dad used to say something. He'd say, son, I brought you into this world. I could take you out and I'll make another one just as good. <laughs> God had one. He had one son. And he gave that son for us. The cool thing about that, and you have to realize this, that God had to give something big. Back in the Old Testament, we see that they would sacrifice animals. And in, and in Hebrews 10, it says, there came a time that the blood of bulls and the blood of goats could not take away sin. They can only cover our sin. And so God needed a sacrifice that was worth more than an animal and something that was actually worth him. And so that's where we see this word in First uh, John, propitiation. It's, it's like that gift that satisfies somebody's wrath. And the only thing that can satisfy God is God himself. And so he offered himself for us, he says that he would redeem us. The word redeem means to buy back something that's rightfully yours already, but to purchase it. And so here we see, uh, and I, I'm not uh, really well versed in Greek, but I know commentators tell me that there's three different Greek words that can be used for redeem. The first one, and, and all these words of redeem have the idea of being in the, in, in the marketplace where the slaves would be sold. And you'd buy a slave for yourself, right? To go uh, work for you or whatever it would be. And, and the first uh, type of redeem is to just go and purchase, to pay the money for that slave. The second type of redeem would be to not only go and purchase them with money, but to take them then out of the marketplace, to take them with you. 
The last redeem and the one that we see here is a redeem that means you've paid the price, you've purchased your possession, you take it out of the marketplace for the express purpose of setting it free. And that's what God has done for us, guys. That he paid himself to deliver us from sin, from sin's penalty, for sure, to take us uh, away from, from hell, but also from the power of sin in our life. God has set us free so that we might live free for him. That's what we see in Galatians chapter 5. So he's purchased us. He's redeemed us from all our lawless deeds. He's purified us. We have this process of sanctification where where as we draw close to the Lord each day, he's making us more and more into his image. And he's made us his own special people. When I think of just how big this world is, I mean, you just think about our planet and how big it is and all the things that work just in our planet for it to work the way it works. You know, just just the water cycle, how somehow it has to work, that the water comes down, uh, it, it evaporates, goes back up, and somehow all these things work together. There's these major governments that run things and there's all kinds of things happening in the world that God has to be worried about or that God has to take care of. And yet, if you zoom out even a little further from the world that's so fine-tuned, you look at a universe that's very fine-tuned, right? You see the sun is the perfect distance from Earth, right? If we switched places with uh, what's the other one closer to the sun? Venus? Is that the one that's, yeah, Venus and then Mars on the outside? If we switch places with those, we would not be able to live. And so God keeps the universe very fine-tuned in the way it should work, the way things rotate and they go around. And, and then you zoom even further, you see the, the galaxies and then all these other galaxies. And you think, well, who am I? That even if God were to zoom in from all as far as everything is and zoom into planet Earth, there's enough of planet Earth that he shouldn't have to deal with insignificant me. And yet he chooses to know us by name. He calls us his own special people. Do you realize you're special to God this morning? He knows you. He knows the hairs on your head. He loves you. He's made us his own special people. And here's the result of what should happen. Because God's grace that saves us, because God's grace that teaches us that we can deny certain things, because of God's grace that shows us how we should live, because God's grace shows us how to wait expectantly, and because God has made us his own special people and he's given himself for us, has he not done everything already? He says that we would become a people who are zealous for good works. What does it mean to be zealous? Again, to exert great energy intensity, enthusiasm, passion. He said that we'd be zealous for good works. Uh, Guys, before we can be zealous, though, about the good works, we need to be zealous about Jesus. We need to be passionately in love with Jesus Christ. And after the things we've talked about today, I don't know how you couldn't be. How, How you can't get excited a little bit when we think of all that God has done for us, all who, all that he is, how we could kind of sit there, and this is the sad thing, I've seen this happen in the church, that we kind of sit back, and maybe it's because we're an entitled people, I don't know what it is, 
but we can sit back and God's poured out all these blessings. Uh, just who he is is enough. Then we look at what he's done even more and we still sit there and go, oh, I think a little, I need a little more still if I'm really going to be zealous here. Right? Like God needs to keep giving us a little bit more so that we'll do the bare minimum. We want to be zealous, guys. Passionate, exerting energy into this walk with God. In Romans 12, verse 1, he says uh, that we would become these living sacrifices for God. That we would live everything for Him. The, the, The problem is not that we don't have enough passion to give. It's not that we can't get zealous. Most of us know how to get zealous, right? I mentioned to you I like baseball. I can get very passionate about baseball. I like going to spring training, watching them just practice. I don't even need to watch a game. I enjoy watching them practice. I, I get to know the players and, who, and what they do and this guy's role and this guy's role and how this guy's going to pitch this pitch right now or at least he should throw this pitch right now and how this guy should try to hit the ball right here so that this can happen this way. And I can get very excited. You can see me already getting a little excited about baseball. I think we're finally under 50 days until pitchers and catchers report to spring training. I'm very excited about this. Other things I get excited about that I'm passionate about. I used to work construction. I worked pipeline construction, and I love it. I love pipeline construction. I love the idea of taking out a print, seeing how this whole thing's supposed to work, and then putting it all together. The last job I did, we, we installed about uh, four and a half, five miles of 36-inch pipe. It was tons of fun to take these 10,000-pound pipes, drop them into the ground, and to take all the measurements and to use all the math that I learned in high school, right, that we never thought we'd use, uh, to use those things, the geometry and the trigonometry and stuff like that, to make things work and to make sure that water would flow and people would get there. It was very exciting to get to go through on a little skateboard uh, through this pipe to to take things out of there and, and clean it all up, going thousands of feet at a time. It was really fun. You could tell I can get passionate, right, about pipeline. I'm very passionate about my little kids. Uh, Ezekiel Daniel was born on August 26, 2011. Elena Lilly was born May 29th of this year. She's seven months old today. Love my little kids. Zeke right now is learning to potty train. Well, no, he learned it already. Took him three days and he got it. I was so stoked out on that. To, to see him, you know, daddy potty, daddy potty. And I, and I get so excited about the things that he learns and the things that he does. Elena right now, she has her two little teeth and she's learning how to sit up now. She's reaching for things. Just started feeding her solids. I, I get so pumped up on those things. Yeah. I'm very passionate about my wife. I was going through some old pictures. I found the pictures of our wedding yesterday. Getting all excited about that. Almost like reliving it, you know seen pictures of when we were on our honeymoon, walking through Pennsylvania, just enjoying each other. I love blessing her. I love bringing a smile to her face. I love saying things that make her laugh. I'm so passionate about my wife. So, so the problem, guys, isn't that we can't get passionate. The problem is that we don't get passionate in the right things. And please don't misunderstand me. You ought to be passionate about your family. You ought to be passionate about your wife and your kids. You ought to be passionate about those things. But here's the cool thing that I find. that as The more passionate I am about God and the things of God, the better I love my wife, the better I love my kids, the better uh, you know everything else is. 
We need to be, guys, zealous about the things of God. It is so sad to me. When I first moved down to Santa Fe Springs, it was a small church that was growing. They were at two services. They had to go to a third service. It took probably six to eight months to be able to go to a third service because we couldn't find people to do children's ministry. Out of a church of four or 500 people, we couldn't find eight people to do children's ministry. Why? Because we're not zealous for good works. We're putting our attention in something else. And I, I have a feeling that in a church this size, a pretty good sized church, that there's some of those same things. That, that we're, not, we're not zealous in the things that we should be zealous about. We're not passionate about the things of God. We say, God created you. He loves you. We, we just studied all the things that God's done and we go, I mean, that's good. But like, let Pastor Zeke deal with that. I mean, I don't want to be a fanatic. I don't want to go like that far. I'll tell you guys, in, in just over 10 years now of finally surrendering my life to the Lord, in the last 10 years, I did it on the way to my high school graduation. In the last 10 years of following God with everything that I have, I have zero regrets. There's not one regret. And I can tell you that with a completely clean conscience. As God is my witness, there's not one regret of going hard after the things of God. My only regrets are the times that I haven't gone hard enough. The times that in my selfishness I've said, well, I don't really want to. I don't really want to give to the God who gave me everything. I don't really want to. He says that we would be a people who are zealous about the things of God. that there would be a desire in us to pray, that there would be a desire in us to read, that there would be a desire in us to, to serve God, to love his people. And then what I find happens when that happens is we become to others like these inspiring examples of what it means to follow God. What do I mean by that? I'll tell you, I've watched my dad now for 29 years. And I can honestly say that I've always seen in him a man who loves God and is passionate about doing the will of God. I'm convinced he loves Jesus more today than he ever has. And it's awesome to see that. And, I, and so I, I look for people in my life because sometimes we can be a little fearful. There's a young girl in our youth ministry who explained to us, you know, I love God, sort of, you know, I I believe in him. I believe his word. I believe all these things. But I'm, I'm just not ready for that. I want my kids to be brought up that way when I do have kids. And I want to marry a godly guy, but like not till I'm 30. I want to enjoy what I want to enjoy. And we're afraid. And, I, and, I, and as I shared that, I said, that's what our youth ministry struggles with, that they're afraid of what it looks like to co- totally surrender to God, to totally go all in, to go hard for the things of God. But I don't think it's just youth kids that go through that. I think there's some of you in here that go through that. Let's say, I, I don't know, Daniel, if I could really surrender to God because uh, it might mean this for my career. Or it might mean this within my family. Or, or it might mean this. I might have to give up this. I might not be able to go to 20 Dodger games this year. I might only be able to go to five. You know what God tells Peter, what Jesus tells Peter, Peter goes, 
after the rich young ruler is turned away. He goes, Lord, what do we have? Because you have to sit on the thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Let me tell you this. There's not anybody who's left homes or family or anything who will not have it all restored back in the afterlife, right? In the life to come. I'm going to tell you guys today it's worth it. And so find people who are passionate about the things of God. I surround myself with people who are passionate about the things of God because we naturally find the lowest common denominator, right? If we find that we don't have to go to church, it's like, well, I can go to church once a week. I don't really need to go twice a week. I surround myself with people who inspire me to always draw closer and closer to God. There are people that when I see, and I'll see a few of them in uh, the second week of January, I go to a conference. And there's certain people that I'll run into that it's like, man, I, I, I better be closer to the Lord than I was last year when I see them because, because they inspire me to grow. And I don't want to go, hey, what did God show you this year? Well, I don't know. I didn't really talk to them all year. Better not go that way. There's guys that inspire me to pray more. There's guys that inspire me to read more. There's guys that inspire me to serve harder. Guys inspire me to take steps of faith. And you know, you know the really cool thing about it is that as we become zealous for the things of God, that we say, you could have all this world. You just give me Jesus. I'm following him. The more zealous we become for the things of God, we become inspiring examples for others to follow. That people would see us and go, how does he have that passion? I ask guys, what do you do? What is your devotion? What does your prayer life look like? I take notes on that stuff. Guys, in these last days, I want to be pressing in to all that God has for us. I want to be going hard for the things of God. I want to be leaning into the tape, right? You know when the runners, they're trying to finish a race and they stick their chest out to try to, they're lean. I want to be that in these last days. I don't want God to have to use anybody else. I don't want him to have to say, well, I guess I'll take that person. You know, I was blown away this last year as we got ready for Christmas and studied the story of, of the angel visiting Mary. And what the angel tells her, I don't know if you realize this, but the angel had told her that she was going to get pregnant before she got married. In that culture, that was totally frowned upon. She was signing up for a lifetime of shame. Do you realize that? We see that because even in John chapter 8, the people made fun of Jesus. They go, we knew you weren't born from Joseph. We weren't born of fornication like you were, buddy. Mary was, was given this opportunity for a lifetime of shame. And she said, let it be to me according to your word. Guys, don't be afraid to go out and get everything that God has for you. Don't be fearful. Only believe. You see, fear is a good motivator. Faith is a good motivator. It's only rarer. Most people would get held back by fear. May we be a people that step forward in faith. So whatever that means for you today, whether that means it's time to start forsaking certain things in your life that you know are bad for you, you know you should have left a long time ago. Or whether it means uh, going and taking a step of faith. Maybe for some of you, it's time to go get involved in children's ministry. It's crazy as those, you could hear them right there, huh? It's crazy as those kids are, man. Maybe it's time to take that step of faith. Maybe God would raise people up from here to go to other places to do the will of God but we won't know until we really surrender to him and we trade in everything that we have and we say, okay, Lord, because of who you are, I'm going to run. 
and I'm going to go get everything that God has for me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. God, it's such a blessing to hear from you. And Lord, I pray that if there was anything I said this morning that was not from you, that you'd help that to be forgotten right now. But Lord, if anything that was said was from you, Lord, I pray that those things would go deep down into our hearts and they would change us, Lord, from the inside out. God, I pray for any in this place this morning who maybe, Lord, they're fearful. Lord, they're, they're, they're being held back from walking in all the fullness. Lord, they're afraid of what it looks like to be zealous for you. Lord, may you remind them who you are, of how much you love them, of everything you've done for them. And so if that's anybody in here right now with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, if you're here today and you're struggling, you you, you don't want to go harder, you've been fearful to go hard, but you realize now that God is calling you to go deeper. You realize you need to repent of the way you've been living or the way you've been acting. I want to pray for you this morning. If that's anybody at all, that it's time for you to go deeper, I'd invite you to just raise your hand. I'd like to pray for you. Right on. God bless you guys over here and over here and over here. God bless you guys in front of me. God bless you and you and you. This is radical. Anybody else that you know it's time to go deeper, God bless you. Yeah, awesome. It's great. That's great right there. Lord, I pray for these who have raised their hand that, Lord, they know that they're not in a place where they should be. And, Lord, I thank you that coming back to you is just as easy as what they just did. That, Lord, they've acknowledged that they're not there. They've agreed with you that they're not there. And so now, Lord, I ask that you would fill them with your spirit and you would strengthen them and help them to go forward. Lord, I pray also for them that as they raise their hands, Lord, as more needs to happen now, Lord, that their first step of faith would be to get up as we sing and to come get prayer from the prayer team. That they'd be able to confess those things that have been happening in their heart. That they'd be able to get right. Lord, for some who raise their hand, maybe they've never even been saved. Lord, that they'd come up and they'd be saved. That they'd accept you as their Savior. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, help us to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.